As I mentioned at the outset, we are going to be looking at the book of Zechariah tonight. And actually, you're like, that's not the last book of the Old Testament, it's Malachi. But we looked at Malachi last spring. I had to do some work on Malachi at, at NMC, and so I kind of killed two burns with one stone that week, and we <laughs> jumped ahead to Malachi then. But uh, uh, we're going to be in Zechariah. That'll be the last book uh, in our study of the Old Testament. Um, and I'm serious. If you have something that's piquing your curiosity you want to talk about and look at together, I'd be more than welcome to, to give that to me. I'm not guaranteeing I'll say yes. It depends how elaborate it is, but we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We'll certainly consider it. Um, but uh, Zechariah, and we're going to read um, from one of, I think, um, not just my favorite stories in Zechariah, but maybe my favorite stories in all the Bible, which I'll explain a little more uh, in, in a bit, but Zechariah chapter 3, and I'll talk more about all of this as we go, but Zechariah 3 is, is what I want to read with you. The heading in the NIV Bible is clean garments for the high priest, clean garments for the high priest, and this is what we read starting at verse 1, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua? There are seven eyes on that stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. And that day each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. The reading of God's own word. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for your word again tonight, and we marvel at how it over and over and over again brings us to our Savior. Words written 400, 500, 800, 1400 years before Christ would be born, words that are about him. Father, lead us again to Christ tonight. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So our focus tonight is on this book of Zechariah. Forgive me if I call it Zephaniah. I don't know why in my own study this week I kept referring to it as Zephaniah. That is a different book. But if I do say Zephaniah, I probably mean Zechariah. Unless I do mean Zephaniah, then we're going to be really confused. Um, But uh, Zechariah was a contemporary of Ezra, Nehemiah, and the prophet Haggai. 
And this means that Zechariah lived and ministered after the return from exile. Talked about this a couple weeks ago when we looked at Haggai. Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. God's people were hauled off into exile. Uh, But in 538 B.C., King Cyrus of Persia, he allowed some of those exiles to return to Jerusalem and to begin rebuilding the temple and the walls of the city. And we read about those events again in Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is also when Haggai and Zechariah prophesied after the Israelites returned from exile. In those days, we read about in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so even as we we read about Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel in the book of Haggai, we read about both of those characters also here in the book of Zechariah, okay, at the same time period. Now, Um, The book of Zechariah is the longest of all the minor prophets. The prophetic books are divided up into two categories. Maybe you knew that, maybe you didn't. There's the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations is actually part of Jeremiah, but Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel are considered the major prophets, and then the rest of them are considered the minor prophets. Okay, so the minor prophets then are the last 12 books of the Old Testament, And of those minor prophets, Zechariah is the longest. More than that, it's one of the more difficult books to read in the Old Testament, and that's because it is filled, and we saw some of this in that text we read together about the stone with seven eyes. It's filled with symbolic and apocalyptic visions in much the same way that Ezekiel is and that Daniel is in the last half and and even that Revelation uh, the book of Revelation is. So it's, it's a difficult book to read. It's, it's, it's challenging. It's one of those books you can sort of read through and be like, I have no idea what this is about, sort of like what happens in Ezekiel sometimes and in the book of, the book of Revelation. Anyway, the book can be divided up into two primary sections, okay? In chapters 1 through 8, the prophet encourages the returned exiles to continue building the temple, in much the same way that Haggai did, okay? In in chapters 1 through 8, Zechariah's message is very similar to Haggai's. Get to work on rebuilding the temple. This is important. You must do this. They were facing opposition from within, opposition from without, and Zechariah's, Zechariah in the first eight chapters, he's encouraging them to keep up with the rebuilding of the temple. In chapters 9 through 14, then, Zechariah sets before uh, these people, the future, future events in the kingdom of God. Okay, he's, he's looking ahead, he's looking into the future, and as he looks into the future, he, he tells us about a king who will come and who will suffer, but who will also be victorious. And it's, I mean, it's a bit cryptic apart from the New Testament, right? In light of the New Testament, we, we can figure it out. But, but on its own, it's a, bit, it's a bit cryptic. He tells us about this king who's going to come, who's going to suffer, who's going to triumph, who's going to reign forever with his people. Right? So that's, that's chapters 9 through 14. Now, the main goal of these sermons on, on the books of the Old Testament was simply to help, help us see how each of these books and ultimately the whole Bible points to Christ. And that's ultimately what I want you to see in Zechariah. And so, uh, and so rather than providing you with a detailed outline of the book and identifying some major themes, which we've done for a number of the other prophetic books, um, we're just going to go straight in 
to how we see Christ in Zechariah. Now, these aren't the only ways by any means. This isn't an exhaustive list, but these are some of the significant ways um, and some of the ways that jumped out to me in my study, and hopefully this will not only help you see Christ in Zechariah, but it'll, and I think it will help you see Christ uh, in all of the Old Testament. But let me, just give, let me just give you three ways that we see Christ in the book of Zechariah. First, in Zechariah, we see something of Christ's work. In Zechariah, we see something of Christ's work. This is, this is what Zechariah 3 ultimately shows us, okay? The prophet Zechariah receives eight night visions. We read about these night visions in chapter uh, 1 through chapter 6. Chapter 1, 7 through chapter 6, 8. These are the eight night visions that Zechariah receives. And again, all of these night visions are meant to encourage God's people to get to work on the rebuilding of the temple. In Zechariah 3, that which we read together, we have the fourth of the eight night visions. And in this fourth vision, the focus is on Joshua the high priest. And in this vision, ultimately, God is affirming Joshua's role as high priest. He's saying, Joshua is the man for the job. You have him. He can lead you. He has my endorsement. So get to work building the temple. That would have been the message for, um, for Zechariah's uh, readers of his day. Uh, but you'll notice that there's, there's much more going on in this scene than just an affirmation of Joshua the high priest. Honestly, that whole scene, at least the first half of it, I should say, is a picture uh, of what Christ has done for us, for each of us, in his life, death, and resurrection. Look at it again with me. Zechariah 3. This is what we read. Then he showed me. He's having his night visions. This is Zechariah talking. He, he sort of, I referred to the Christmas carol this morning, you know, about how Ebenezer Scrooge goes on this journey with these ghosts. That actually is sort of, sort of what Zechariah is doing here. In fact, one commentator compares it to that. He's like on this journey with these ghosts or an angel of the Lord or whatever, but he's sort of on this journey and he's seeing things. So then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So we have, we have Joshua, we have the angel of the Lord, we have Satan over here. And, um, and Satan is, is basically saying, Joshua is not worthy to be the high priest. Joshua is not worthy to lead God's people in this capacity. He's hurling accusations at Joshua. And of course, this is, we know this is what Satan does to all of us, isn't it? He accuses us. He points to our flaws. He tells us of the guilt within. And he says, you're not worthy. He's the accuser. Now, as you'll notice, Joshua says nothing in all this. In fact, you get the sense from reading it that Joshua doesn't at all disagree with Satan. <laughs> like most of us don't agree with Satan. You're right. I'm not worthy. I'm sinful. I'm flawed. But the Lord, the Lord responds on Joshua's behalf. Verse 2, then the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? And then starting at verse 3, this is the crux of the matter. Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. 
The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Now, we don't have to wonder what this represents because we read it in the next verse. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. These filthy clothes, they represent Joshua's sin. And in taking off the filthy clothes, the angel of the Lord is taking away Joshua's sin. But that's not all the angel does, right? See, I have taken away your sin, and now I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. This is a picture. If you want to illustrate the gospel for your children or grandchildren, this might be one of, one of the best places in all of Scripture to go. This is a picture. This is an illustration of what happens to the sinner when he or she puts their faith in Christ. When a sinner puts her faith in Jesus Christ, that person's filthy clothes of sin are removed. They're, they're, taking off, they're taken off of us. And in their place, new clothes, clean clothes, are put on us. The theological word we use to describe this is justification. Justification, it refers to the sinner being declared righteous in God's sight. We are justified by faith alone, Luther said, and we still say amen and hallelujah to that, right? Justification refers to the sinner being declared righteous in God's sight, and this is a picture of justification. This is a picture of what happens to you and me when we put our faith in Jesus. Now, it's sometimes said that justification means it's just as if I never sinned, and that is correct so far as it goes, okay, when a person is justified through faith in Christ, it is just as if he or she never sinned. The problem with that definition, however, is that it only goes halfway. Because in justifying us, God not only forgives our sin, He not only takes our filthy clothes off of us, but He also gives us something, right? And that's what we see in this picture, the whole twofold aspect of justification. He takes our sin away, takes our filthy clothes off of us, puts something in its place, new clothes, ultimately the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus not only died the death that we deserve as sinners, Jesus also lived the life that we have not. Jesus obeyed God's law perfectly. And so when we come to him in faith, it's not just the merits of his death that we receive, although we do very much gloriously receive that, the merits of his death, our sin taken away. It's also the merits of his perfectly obedient life. His righteousness is credited to our account. So in Christ, God doesn't just remove the filthy clothes of sin and then say, okay, your sin's gone. I hope you do better from this point forward. But he removes our filthy clothes. He puts the rich garments of Christ's righteousness on us. So your sin is removed. You're covered in righteousness. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. It asks, how are you right with God? And it answers, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. 
Even though my conscience, and we might add in light of this story, even though my conscience and Satan accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I'm still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. God grants to me, God covers me in the perfect righteousness, holiness of Christ. So that, the catechism says, it's as if I never sinned or been a sinner. It's as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was for me. It's as if I'm righteous. So in Christ, God takes our filthy clothes off us. He puts new clothes on us. What we couldn't ever have imagined, however, is that God would, God would do this by having His Son exchange clothes with us. But that's what happened, right? God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the wonder of it all that comes to light in the New Testament. God wouldn't just take our filthy clothes off and give us new clothes. He would, he would do that by having His Son come to earth and give us His clothes and wear our clothes. <laughs> so in Zechariah, we see a picture of, of Christ's work. We see an illustration of the believer's justification and also, I suppose, a reminder of how to silence Satan when he throws up your sins before your face. You can say, you're right, Satan. You're right, I am a sinner, but in Christ, my sin has been removed from me, and I am righteous in God's sight. Second, in Zechariah, we see something of Christ's words, words. Look at chapter 4. This is the fifth of Zechariah's eight-night visions. In this vision, God is encouraging the Israelites to continue rebuilding the temple by endorsing the leadership of Zerubbabel. So first, in chapter 3, he's endorsing the leadership of Joshua. In chapter 4, he's endorsing uh, something, the leadership of, of Zerubbabel. Um, but what I want to draw your attention to specifically is verse 10. Okay, verse 10, look what we read there. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand. Of Zerubbabel. The prophet here is referring to the rebuilding of the temple. Um, and you might remember in Haggai, there were people who were old enough to remember the temple before it was destroyed. Right? There were people over 70 years old. They remembered the first temple. They remembered the glory and the splendor of the first temple. They looked on the foundations of the second temple and they realized this isn't going to be anything like the first temple. This is very, very discouraging. And it seems that, that, that the prophet here, he's, he's speaking to these people. And, and it seems they were, they were scoffing at the relatively mundane task of, of Zerubbabel, you know, holding a plumb line and, and making sure the walls are straight or, or doing whatever you do with a plumb line. I used to be in construction, but now I forgot everything about it. Um, but uh, good thing Gary Gladue's not here. He'd probably throw me out. But anyway, whatever you do with a plumb line, right? And they realized, you know, uh, holding a plumb line isn't something that takes much, takes much skill, Holding a plumb line is, is something that is, that is simple, that is mundane, right? And they, they watched this going on, and they didn't think much of it. There's the foundation of the temple, and they were less than impressed with everything that was going on. 
less than impressed with Zerubbabel and with his workers and just the daily grind of labor and the slow progress they were making. But they shouldn't have been less than impressed. That's that's the prophet's point. They should not have been less than impressed. And the reason is because of what God said through the prophet Haggai. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. That is, God has already said to these people, hey, it all may look small and unimpressive now, but God's going to do something big here. And as we read this, we're, we're reminded, again, we're hearing Jesus' words, we're reminded of something Jesus said. He said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? What parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed you plant in the ground, yet when planted it grows, becomes the largest of all the garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. We see something of that being acknowledged here in Zechariah 4, that the kingdom of God is often small and inauspicious in its beginnings, that on on many occasions the beginning of some great enterprise in God's kingdom is small and unnoticeable and unimpressive. J.C. Ryle captured the truth of this principle when he said, let us remember the manger in Bethlehem and learn wisdom. The name of him who lay there, a helpless infant, is now known all over the globe. The little seed which was planted in the day when Jesus was born has become a great tree, and we ourselves are rejoicing under its shadow. Let it be a settled principle in our religion never to despise the day of small things. One child may be the beginning of a flourishing school, one conversion the beginning of a mighty church, one word the beginning of some blessed Christian enterprise, one seed the beginning of a rich harvest of saved souls. So don't despise the day of small things, because as Jesus would later say more clearly, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Finally, in Zechariah, we see something of Christ's life. So Christ's work, Christ's words, man, I wish I had another W, Christ's life. That starts with an L. Oh, well. As I said in chapters 9 through 14 of Zechariah, the prophet sets before us future events in the kingdom of God, and he tells us specifically about a king who will both suffer and be victorious. We, again, know who this king is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. But the specificity, the specificity with which Zechariah speaks of the Lord Jesus, is striking. Just listen to to a couple passages. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Turn there. Zechariah 9, verse 9. Again, he's looking into the future. He's he's telling the people of God about something that's going to happen. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That, of course, is fulfilled to the letter in Matthew 21 at the triumphal entry. Zechariah 12.10, this one is, this one is mind-blowing to me. Zechariah 12.10 This is what we read there. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. 
They will look on me, the Lord is speaking here, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. They will look on me, the one they have pierced. It's a clear reference to Jesus' crucifixion. It's also a remarkable affirmation of the truth that Jesus is God, for this is the Lord speaking here. And the Lord says, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. Well, who did they pierce? They pierced Jesus. How then can God say they pierced Him in Zechariah 12.10? You know the answer. They can say it because Jesus is God. But in Zechariah, we see a clear reference to the most astonishing truth the Bible has for us, that God would die for His people. So in Zechariah, we, we see something of Jesus' life. Now, there are, there are many other clear references to Christ, which we haven't even touched on. If you go back, for instance, to uh, Zechariah 4, Zechariah 4, Zechariah 3, sorry, verse 8, listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant the branch, clear reference to Christ, it's capitalized, so the NIV knows that. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. Another reference to the cross. Turn now to uh, Zechariah, Zechariah 10, verse 4. Zechariah 10, verse 4, just the first line. From Judah will come the cornerstone. Another reference to Christ. Zechariah 13.1. I think this song was the inspiration for my favorite hymn. On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. That too is a clear reference to Christ and to the cross. I mean, honestly, the book of Zechariah is full of Christ. It's full of Christ. And at the end of this series, then, I simply remind you of what I told you when we began, that the Bible, and in this sense, especially the Old Testament, we know the New Testament is, but especially the Old Testament, is a book that is ultimately about Jesus. It's ultimately about Jesus. I remember sitting at Calvin listening to one of their speakers, a man who's a well-known commentary writer. He came in and he said, you can preach from the Old Testament without ever mentioning Christ. Now, I give my seminary professor credit because they pushed back on him for this, but that's what he said. You can preach from the Old Testament without mentioning Christ. That's to abuse the text. He's not in there. He's wrong. And I won't buy his, any of his commentaries to this day. The Old Testament is about Christ. In Luke 24, the resurrected Jesus joins up with two men. They're on the road to Emmaus. 
Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. It is all about Jesus. It all points to him. It all finds fulfillment in him. And so as we read scripture, as you read scripture, even as you read the Old Testament, I pray that God helps you all the more see Christ and know Christ and trust Christ and become like Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, how remarkable it is to see that it's all about Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for the salvation that poor and needy sinners like us find in Him. We thank you for the joy that you've afforded to us in this life through Him. And we pray that you would help us live lives that bring glory to Him. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, why don't you stand for the parting blessing and then we'll sing our closing song together. Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn His face toward you and grant you His peace. Amen. We're going to sing number 404 together. That's the familiar tune, right, Karen? 404, The Solid Rock. And, uh, oh, that's in the blue book. I apologize. Bear with me a second. I'm going I'm to check the verses. 404. And uh, you know what? Let's, let's do all four. Um, I was going to say something about it. Oh, yeah. Never mind. All four verses. <laughs>